Welcome back to Psyche Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And as always, I want to thank you for all the support and all from all of our listeners all over the world. Um, I want to give a shout out to one of our New Zealand listeners. Um, she said, just call her Miss Titi. Uh, she hooked me up with a wonderful New Zealand honey tasting uh, little kit with six different kinds of New Zealand honey. So I really appreciated that. Um, it was a wonderful uh, thing for her to do. Um, also, um, I want to thank all of you who have been giving us five stars um, on the various platforms, trying to help us get into those recommended lists. It's greatly appreciated. Um, and as always, if you would like to show your support, uh, we now have a patron page. It's patron.com. Uh, forward slash psychic crime. There are uh, four levels of patronage. Um, it's five dollars uh, to nine dollars is the Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective level, where you get access to patron-only posts and messages. Um, on the ten to nineteen dollar level is the Jessica Fletcher level. Uh, you get early access to content, patron-only voting power, and uh, all the stuff from the Encyclopedia Brown level. You get, with $20, the Veronica Mars level, you get access to the Once Monthly Dumber Than a Sack of Hair Stupid Crime Podcast, which we're going to be posting a little snippet from that for you guys to hear for the first time so you can get a taste of what that's going to be like full library access and the next level $50 or higher is the Hercule Poirot greatest detective in the world level you'll get a shout out on the podcast the psychic crime t-shirt and obviously all the things from the other tiers so if you want to stop by that patron page and show your support or if you would rather do one time uh, you can hit us with Venmo at psych your crime um, that's psych slash your slash crime anything would be appreciated and i just like to say as always really really love and appreciate your support from all over the world now uh this week we are going to be looking into the case of emil weaver who was a college student who gave birth to her baby in the bathroom of her sorority and then killed her child while public perception of killing a newborn has shifted over the centuries it still does occur albeit at much much lower rates in 1970 the u.s forensic psychiatrist philip j resnick argued that when a parent kills his or her baby in a 24-hour window after birth the act is incredibly different from deaths that occur at other points in a child's life Neonaticide, as it is called, are almost exclusively carried out by their mothers and are unlike those who kill their children later. These women are much less likely to be psychotic or severely depressed. Instead, as continuing research shows, they tend to be young and lacking in social support, ill-equipped to be pregnant in the first place, and driven by a toxic combination of fear and shame. They almost always give birth alone 
having spent the previous nine months unable or unwilling to accept the fact that they're even pregnant. In some cases, the newborn dies from what is effectively just neglect, left unattended or improperly cared for. In other instances, the baby is suffocated, stabbed, or even drowned. Now, upon setting foot on Muskegum's campus as a freshman in 2013, Emile Weaver achieved something her mother, Sandy Potts, never had. During sophomore year of high school, a classmate had sexually assaulted Sandy. Don't you know what happens to girls like you who are out late at night? She remembered her mother asking her when she got home. Sandy became severely depressed, suicidal, and reliant on alcohol to cope with the trauma. Desperate to leave, she finished her high school credits early, but her parents wouldn't let her go to college until she turned 18. And while she waited, she accidentally got pregnant by an older man. A few years later, as a single mother working at a discount department store, Sandy fell in love with her supervisor, a Vietnam veteran twice her age named Michael Weaver. By that time, they had Emil on Christmas Day of 1994. Sandy was 22 and had three children under the age of four. When Emil was six months old, the family moved to a mobile home near the elementary school in Hannibal, Ohio, about 50 miles up the Ohio River from Sandy's hometown. Sandy believes Mike had untreated PTSD. She saw him cope by drinking and working excessively and that he physically abused her but not the children. Emile remembers her parents fighting constantly and that her small home was constantly filled with shouting. She developed anxiety at a very young age, starting by chewing on her sippy cups and biting her fingernails until they bled. A psychotherapist would later describe their household as an authoritarian one with spanking and the silent treatment as forms of punishment. In an attempt to offer her children information she never had, Sandy tried to have a sex ed talk with them, only to find out that her children knew about sex acts she never even heard of. Conversations made her blush and she found them embarrassing. Emile's parents divorced when she was 10, and two years later, Mike died. Sandy remarried, and Emile found her new stepfather too controlling. She'd later tell psychotherapists that he wrote his name on his groceries so no one else would eat them and refused to let anyone sit on the living room couch because he was afraid they would dent it. So she stated, we all just stayed in our rooms alone. Meanwhile, an autoimmune disorder and repeated surgeries that caused a brain fog rendered Sandy, her mother, distracted and often unavailable during Emile's teen years. Still, Emile was highly active and high achieving and a very popular student. She fell in love junior year and dated her high school boyfriend until they graduated. Coming from a town with a population of 384, Emile chose Muskegon for its small size and its navigatable small campus. She stated, it's because I'm horrible with directions. She started as a chem major before deciding to switch to biology. Her freshman year Twitter feed is a testament to just how normal her life was. Concerns over a messy dorm room, complaints about too early classes, and how much she needs a nap. All I do in college is homework and eat snacks. 
Hashtag what a life, one of her tweets read. Emile rushed the Delta sorority in the fall. In photos, she is a slim, pretty blonde with deep set eyes and frequently dilated pupils, sometimes giving her a very frenzied look. The Deltas described her as an emotionally reserved but socially outgoing person. She had a great sense of humor and was always up to party. Though described by some as hot-headed, friends found her considerate and kind. Sophomore year started out full of promise. Emile was newly single. She moved into the Delta house, living with her best friend Jess in a bedroom that they painted pink. Less than two weeks after classes started, she went to the wellness center seeking birth control. Emile was given a routine pregnancy test. She was told she'd get her prescription after it came back negative. Emile had spent freshman year in a chaotic on and off again relationship with an athlete she met at a bonfire the first night of school. Emile would testify in court that he was abusive. She broke up with him at the end of freshman year. Over the, time, over the summer, she spent time with both her college ex and her high school sweetheart, whom she would describe as the man who never went away, the love of my life. In September, a voicemail and two emails asking Emile to visit the wellness center went unanswered. When Emile hadn't responded a week later, the nurse consulted with the staff doctor and the director of the wellness center. They sent increasingly strongly worded texts and then a certified letter through campus mail. Five days later, Emile signed for an envelope containing her positive pregnancy test. She never opened it. One weekend night in October, as Emile was coming down the stairs, she fell. Emile blamed the fall on being drunk, but the way she fell without catching herself seemed weird to Carrie, a girl who also lived in the Delta house. According to Carrie, over the next few weeks, she heard that other Deltas had seen Emile fall in a similar fashion. Between her drinking and her falling, we were honestly concerned about her because we weren't sure if she was pregnant and trying to do something about it. Rachel, the house manager, knew Emile from back home where they played basketball against each other. In the trial, Rachel said she had texted her before winter break to ask if she was pregnant and Emile had told her no. Emile acknowledged the pregnancy to one person, her ex, who she thought was the baby's father. According to her testimony, she wasn't sure exactly when during the fall she told him she was pregnant or that she might be pregnant, but she remembers his response. He didn't want any part of it, she said during her testimony. He acted like it was all my fault. He didn't want me to tell anyone. His reaction was baseball season was coming and that was his main priority and nothing else mattered. One weekend in November, her ex did drive to Muskegon's campus to take Emile to an abortion clinic for pre-counseling session. But on their way to the clinic, they were hit with an ice storm and Emile and he turned around on the, were turned around and forced back by highway patrol. They never went again. Um, and for some of you who may not be aware, this is 2015, so this is right before Ohio passed the fetal heartbeat law. And for those of you not in the U.S., the fetal heartbeat law is a law that made it illegal for you to get an abortion as soon as you could hear a heartbeat 
in the fetus. Now, that's directly in conflict with the actual abortion laws, the federal abortion laws in the United States. And so basically it's an end run. So it makes it that abortion is technically still legal, but in that state of Ohio, it's inaccessible uh, basically to everybody. Um, so uh, she states, I didn't want to go alone. And he told me baseball season was more important than me and what was happening. And he didn't have any other time to help me. He told a detective they never really discussed an abortion or even pregnancy after the storm, even though they were talking regularly. At a school of 2,500 students, her sorority sister said pregnant students were rare. Emil remembered hearing about other pregnant students from her sorority sisters. Each and every day, I would sit at a table with them and they would talk about the one pregnant girl all the time, either her weight gain or, oh my God, I can't believe she's pregnant in college or I, I, everything. So I just didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want to be that person that was talked about constantly. Several of Emil's sorority sisters repeatedly tried to ask her if she was pregnant but she always come them off bluntly and just stated, I'm not pregnant, even before they could get the question out. When the Deltas couldn't get a satisfactory answer out of her, they tried using a Delta drinking game to put her in a position where not drinking would be weird. At a party during the spring, uh, Taylor and another Delta gave Emil a strawberita popped the tab and sang the Delta song, after which the recipient is supposed to drink. We were like, kind of seeing if she was pregnant, she testified. Emil took a tiny sip. Like many sororities, Delta Gamma Theta produces an abundance of swag. Emil had been wearing baggy sweatshirts that semester, but when it was time for the annual Greek Week dodgeball tournament in April, she wore a custom design from Delta's t-shirt committee. Dressed identically to her sisters, Emile stood out. Rumors had already been going around, but now we're in front of a campus and the rest of the Greek life competing in matching t-shirts. In an early game, Emile dodged a ball and fell really hard. Delta did go ahead and make it to the final round, and it was Emile who made the winning catch but she caught the ball right in her stomach. It was really bizarre, Elise recalled. She was on the court right next to Emil and turned to share in her success, but Emil was not excited. She seemed out of it. It was just turning around and celebrating with someone else. A week later, Emil went into labor. Taylor woke up at 7.30 on April 22nd, 2015 for an early class and stated she heard a screech like a dying cat, followed by three or four cries. Tracing the noise, she walked downstairs. From the empty study, she saw a light beneath the door of one of the bathrooms, and she assumed the person was using it to play a game or watch a video on their phone. So she went ahead and took a shower. Now, in the case of 96% of neonaticides, Emil gave birth at home, close to other people, but entirely alone. These are risky conditions for a delivery, even if it's a planned home birth overseen by a midwife. 
they're roughly 10 times more likely to result in a stillbirth and hospital deliveries, according to a 2013 study of 13 million U.S. births. Women accused of neonaticide often claim the baby was stillborn, and although it sounds like a convenient excuse, it seems that at-home births increase the risk of stillbirths and create an environment ripe for neonaticide, where a desperate, exhausted young woman gives birth to an otherwise unaccounted-for infant in a home where others are statistically likely to be present. In Emile's case, though, the autopsy concluded the baby was born alive. Emile's account of what happened in the bathroom is gruesome. She had stomach pain and diarrhea the night before. There was a bug going around campus, and so that's just what she thought it was. When she woke him in the morning, she went to the bathroom feeling like she needed to go to the bathroom, like she might have diarrhea. She said, I felt pressure lower, and that's when I realized I was actually delivering a baby. I just pushed once, and the head and everything basically just came out. I think I helped with her shoulder and helped pull her into the toilet. But Emil was distracted by what else was coming out of her. I was bleeding really, really, really bad. And that's when I noticed the placenta cord was still in. And I started to panic because I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. Delivering the placenta didn't stop the bleeding. So she just kept stuffing paper towels inside her vagina. Emil got a knife from the kitchen, which her sister, sorority sisters later found on a shelf in the bathroom. And she cut the umbilical cord. Then she placed the baby face upright in the trash can. The chief forensic pathologist would describe the baby as a 6.6 pound girl, 21 and a quarter inches long and pink and healthy. At approximately 38 weeks, she wasn't quite full term. There were no bruises, no signs of strangulation or sad rooms. He later testified she died from asphyxiation. Showering in a different downstairs bathroom, Taylor could hear the study toilet flushing repeatedly as Emil was trying to flush the horrible looking placenta down the toilet. I just wanted it to go away, she stated in court. I just didn't want to look at it. The toilet clogged and overflowed. Exhausted and lightheaded, Emil laid down on the couch in the study. As soon as she could stand up again, Emil went back to the bathroom frantic to clean everything up. She was scared she might bleed to death, so she set an alarm for several hours later to make sure that that didn't happen while she was asleep. Around 5 o'clock, Emile and Jess went for dinner at McDonald's. Emile drove. She seemed fine, like mentally and emotionally, but she was limping a lot, her roommate Jess said on the stand. Back in their room, the two watched TV until some of their sorority sisters arrived asking if anyone to get ice cream. Her roommate went, but Emile stayed behind. Again, Emile confided in the boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, the babe, who she thought was the baby's father. No more babies, she texted, taken care of. He texted back. I'd like to know how you killed my kid. At first, she refused to tell him. And she said, you haven't cared this whole time. But then wrote, she'd given birth to a baby girl with his dark hair who died from placental complications. I find this crazy and insane that he told her, I don't have time for you. I don't have time for your pregnancy because I've got baseball. But then when she tells him, sorry, um, it's taken care of. He's like, how'd you kill my baby? Like you didn't care while she was pregnant. You didn't care while she desperately needed help. And, but now that the baby is dead, you suddenly cared. Like that's ridiculous. 
I went by myself, she texted him, suggesting that she had gone to the hospital. She was lying, but Emil also texted something she thought was true. No one knew she'd given birth. Sitting around and discussing the rumors that had been going around for months, Emil's roommate mentioned that she had been sick all day. She looked skinnier than when they had gone for dinner, and the bathroom was a mess. One girl suggested that Emil had probably miscarried. Then, as a joke, someone said maybe she had her baby and threw it in a dumpster. So Pledge, named Elise, volunteered, half-joking, to take a look. She grabbed another girl, and they went to the dumpsters. The bins were empty, but a small trash bag was propped up next to them. Heavy and leaking, the bag had been tied so tight that Elise couldn't untie it. Instead, she tore a hole in the plastic. Among a mac and cheese box and a Doritos bag, they saw what looked like a foot. I'm done, the other girl said. I didn't sign up to be in a sorority for this. It was very dark and hard to see, and they ran back to a car. Where, in the car, the sorority president said they needed to know for sure. Reluctantly, they went back. Using one of the phone's flashlights, they looked inside and found the baby. Inside the sorority house, other Delters were making grim discoveries of their own. In a group text sent out by the house manager that stated, Attention housemates, whoever made the mess in the study bathroom needs to clean it up ASAP. The sorority manager wrote, It looks like a murder scene, as a joke, before offering herself up as a resource in case anyone needed to talk. When a few other Deltas went to see what was wrong in the bathroom, they noticed things that Rachel, the sorority house manager, had it. Ashley was one of those girls, and she was hanging out on the front porch with a friend from a nearby frat, unaware of what the other girls had found behind the house. When a Delta came out and described what had happened in the bathroom, as they talked, an ambulance pulled onto the street. Dear God, dear God, dear God, don't stop at our house, she thought. The Deltas were separated into different rooms. Ashley found a calm-seeming Emil upstairs. I don't know what's going on, but I love you no matter what, Ashley told her. Olivia, who also lived upstairs, first heard the pregnancy rumor a month earlier and noticed Emil gaining weight, but only in her stomach. Olivia, Emil whispered, leaning out of her bedroom. What's going on? Olivia didn't know what to say, but together they crept from room to room, watching the responding officers cordon off the house with crime scene tape. Soon, everyone except Emil was ushered outside of the house and spaced across the yard and told to face the street. When the EMTs climbed the stairs, they found Emil sitting on her bed, cross-legged, despite severe vaginal tears that would require stitches working on a paper. The Deltas couldn't help but turn around and watch as Emil was led away in a police car. Sandy Potts, Emil's mother, learned something had happened after one of the Deltas messaged her on Facebook. The previous night, before the cops escorted Emil from the sorority house, Emil talked to a school administrator who'd shown up at the scene. They spent about five minutes together in Emil's room, and the administrator later testified that they just talked about classes. Emil says none of the Muskegon staffers that she saw that night encouraged her to go to a hospital or suggested she talk to a lawyer or offer to accompany her to the station. According to trial transcripts, over five interviews that lasted until 
almost four o'clock in the morning, Emil confessed increasingly incriminating details, from claiming she hadn't taken a pregnancy test to admitting she hadn't had her period since October. During the first interview, Emil said the baby didn't make any noise. By the second, she said maybe it was breathing. By the fourth, she said it was moving a little bit and making some noises. Throughout the interviews, Emil maintained she hadn't hurt the baby and the baby wasn't moving and was placed in the garbage. Emil was bleeding heavily the entire time and spent the breaks between the interview rooms, between the interviews, in the bathroom, restuffing her vagina with paper towels. Can we just talk about this first? At no point did anyone take a girl who has just given birth to a hospital to seek medical attention. Now, anyone who's given birth understands you bleed heavily for several days and she's not been stitched up. There's massive vaginal tearing that happens when you give birth. She has not been stitched up, so she's bleeding profusely due to massive vaginal tearing and they're just basically letting her free bleed all over the place and she's not been given any medical attention which is absolutely disgusting and horrible hours and hours of interviews without a single offer of medical attention on top of that she slept on the floor in the police station she just gave birth she's heavily bleeding and she's laying on the ground on the floor of the police station in a final interview the next day around noon, she acknowledged she had been more focused on her own health than the babies, but insisted she didn't try and harm or kill the baby. If she was going to do that, she asked, why, didn't she, why did she take the baby out of the toilet instead of just leaving her there to drown? Emil finally was allowed to go home to her mother's house and crawled straight into bed. Finally, on April 25th, 81 hours after she had given birth, her mother took her to a hospital where she was treated for an infection and excessive bleeding. She's still bleeding 81 hours, over three days after she gave birth. Hospital notes indicate staffers first thought she had had a miscarriage. Then they realized she had given almost a full-term birth. They called the police who re-interviewed her while she's in the hospital. Emil says the hospital didn't provide or refer her to any mental health care. Hospital records don't suggest they even tried. A court-appointed psychologist later diagnosed Emil with PTSD, major depression, and panic disorder. Emil's sorority sisters were split about their feelings towards what she did. Some referred to her a monster, while others tried to keep an open mind, hoping to find answers about her behavior during the trial. For the trial, Emil was represented by R. Aaron Miller, at the trial, Miller said Emil had lied and told untruths, but she had absolutely not, and she had absolutely not done the right thing in disposing of her baby. But he attacked the fact that they were charging her with aggravated murder and disputed the prosecution's suggestion that the baby, who had been named Addison, was suffocated in the garbage bag. So they were not saying that she actually. Suff purposefully suffocated like she went in planning to suffocate the child but that by putting the child in the garbage that's how the child suffocated meal did not kill her baby he argued she put a dead baby in the trash the asphyxiation could have been caused by the way the baby was set down before being placed in the garbage bag not due to lack of oxygen in the garbage bag 
He tried several tactics to dispute the autopsy findings, and the phenomena of pregnancy denial did not come up at all. But when the prosecutor asked Emil what she thought would happen when the baby came, she said, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about the pregnancy. I denied it. Asked why she hadn't taken pregnancy steps to be prepared, like gotten diapers or baby clothes, she said, because I said no, I was not pregnant so many times that in my mind, none of it was happening. After deliberating for only an hour and 18 minutes, the jury found Emil guilty on all counts. At the sentencing, Miller asked for leniency, referring to the greater issue of neo neonaticide for the first time. He described an offense committed by young girls across the country and defined it as a societal problem, but offered no further explanation. He didn't bring up her mental health issues. Given the opportunity to speak, Emil asked for forgiveness. It's hard to find the words to say because I can't forgive myself, she said. She apologized to Addison, her baby, for the life she didn't get to live and to her sorority sisters for the emotional suffering and negative publicity she brought them. I'm especially, especially sorry to Samantha and Elise who found Addison and who can never get those images out of their heads. In his sentencing remark, Judge Mark C. Flegel read from letters of several of Emile's sorority sisters who talked about how traumatized they are. The Delta suffered daily, the judge said, and unfortunately, there just aren't charges for that. He also read from a letter Emile had written to him acknowledging her initial indifference to her child, Addison. In those four short paragraphs, she mentioned I 15 times and my five times. Once again, it's all about you. On the charge of aggravated murder, he sentenced her to life without the possibility of parole. Now, according to the Muskegon County prosecutors, D. Mitchell Haddix and Ron Welch, they think she got off easy. They actually had considered going for the death penalty. We knew she was a young girl, and we really didn't think it was a case where a jury would reach a death penalty verdict, Haddix said. And you know what? After we tried that case, we think they'd have given her the death penalty in a heartbeat. That's the effect that she had on a jury. I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I find that just disgusting. The death penalty is something that you reserve only for the most heinous of murderers. It's something that you reserve for premeditated crimes. Someone who goes in someplace with a plan to kill someone. Something not for a girl in the heat of the moment who put her baby in a garbage and that died as a result of her denying a pregnancy, not being equipped to be a mother. That's not something that you give someone the death penalty for. And I think that everything about this shows the attitude that Ohio has to women who are not equipped to be parents and just are not in that position. They don't really care about the woman about her state they care about the baby and i mean it's very obvious by the fact that at no point did anybody try and get her any type of care you know for the fact medical attention uh, yes she did something awful and you need to interrogate her but you are also have a duty to get her medical attention and nobody tried to do that um just the way that they talk about it. She could be very callous and cold, and that's understandable, but she did not commit a premeditated murder. 
she did not do something that rises to the level of the death penalty. And the fact that they're even discussing that, that that was even an option, that really shows you how, where people's heads are in this state when it comes to pregnant women and and the choices that they may make. And I think that, you know, the idea that she couldn't handle being pregnant, she did not want to be pregnant, for me, I feel like this is more about that and the attitudes toward her, the indifference to get her medical attention. I feel like that's more, I'm going to punish you now because it's very clear you were throwing yourself down the stairs. You were trying to end your pregnancy. Like it's just, it's just not, she should be treated the way anyone who commits a pre who commits a, a in the heat of the moment crime and it wasn't an aggravated assault like she didn't hit the child she didn't beat the child like like it just it it, it doesn't fit together it's just very disjointed I feel like it all doesn't come together like the way that they went after her case so this just doesn't this whole this doesn't sit right with me um from I feel like a legal standpoint like it all doesn't fit together the way that these cases should <laughs> um I would really hope um as this is only um she was only sentenced four years ago not even four years ago three and a half years ago I would really hope that her mother consider suing the police for the fact that they did not get her medical attention and it resulted in a infection because that's just heinous it's egregious but that is it for this week uh, next week please join me when we look at the case of two warring neighbor families whose vendetta against each other ends in a shooting and a house burnt to the ground in the meantime I hope you feel better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. Thank you.